and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 114. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Caroline Borders. And today we're going to be reacting to the most popular TED Talk ever entitled Do Schools Kill Creativity? And this is a talk by Sir Ken Robinson, and it might have been the first TED Talk I ever watched. And I think this podcast is very much inspired by similar open-minded discourse surrounding various aspects of our lives, and so I wanted to discuss it. And Caroline, I asked you to watch it. Had you seen it before? I think I'd seen it before, but it had been a while. All right. And to get into the discussion, what were some of the salient points or impressions which stuck out to you as you watched it? Well, in terms of first impressions, I found Ken Robinson extremely captivating. How he wove the story, it all felt kind of like he'd not even rehearsed it. And it was just like, yes, there were definitely certain points that he was trying to touch on, but at the same time, he kind of wove it into this very personal and casual dialogue that made his points hit home a little more strongly with the members of his audience. I agree. I think he's a very charismatic individual. And it's interesting because a year ago, you and I responded to a viral video called Don't Stay in School, which looked at very similar ideas of how education systems fail us or fail to examine certain principles of our nature as thinking and feeling beings. And that tone was much more angry and indignant because the rapper in the video was speaking from a perspective of a student and one who felt he had been cheated in many ways by the educational system. And Ken Robinson in many ways took a parental tone, not only for his own children, but he spoke consistently of our future children and the children who are growing up today in 30 years after the talk he gave, although it's now 20 years because the talk was given in February of 2006, predictions estimated that more people would pass through the education system in that 30-year period than the sum of all people in all of human history. And so I think Robinson makes a very fair point that education is something we all have to look at. It's a facet of societies all throughout the world, and therefore it's very relatable. And I think there's a reason this talk received 36 or 38 million views, and that's because education relates to all of us. He made a very interesting point about halfway through the talk that if you're at a dinner party with someone and you find out that they are an educator or they work in education, he joked that the blood would drain from most people's faces. But if you ask them, what was your education like? People will have no end of details and anecdotes and opinions because we all take pride in our education and it's something that defines us in the same way that our families and our hometowns and our friends define us. And I really appreciated that. I think he did a wonderful job of relating the talk to really any viewer. And that's an impressive skill. Is there an aspect of this talk which you'd like to tackle first? Well, his discussion of how education was formalized really starting pretty recently in the 19th century was interesting to me and also evoked a lot of things that I've learned in my anthropology classes about Marxism and how education is a means to conform and establish a workforce, especially starting in the Industrial Revolution. And pardon the interruption, but I found it really fascinating that Robinson's phrasing was that formalized education was established to meet the needs of industrialism, as though this human concept, this framework that people have come up with, is a living entity in some ways, that it needs, it hungers, it wants for something. 
And I find that kind of ironic because as a result, you stop humanizing the students. They become resources, they become statistics and figures, and they lose a degree of their humanity. And that's what stands out to me when he uses that word needs. That's exactly right. I mean, when you think about the school system, you think going from place to place throughout most of the day, being cued to go to those places by bells, you're being trained to do factory work, more or less. Maybe not so much the case today, but definitely part of the reasoning behind the way education was structured back in the 19th century to prepare a workforce. I found myself nodding my head because I'd heard that before in a lot of my anthropology classes and how we're trained also through education to be ranked and trained as individuals to want to please an authority figure and do well within a system of grading. And in that, a lot of disciplines that are more subjective, I think, are left by the wayside where you can grade math, you can grade chemistry, you can grade biology because everything is fact. Whereas if you grade a dance performance, someone's going to say that's a good dance performance while another person may say that's garbage. And I think it's a really interesting phenomenon of education when you examine it from a historical perspective to find that we devalue the arts largely because of this enforcement of capitalism that has been generated over the past two plus centuries. I agree. And another aspect of his talk that I really enjoyed is how forward thinking he was in a literal sense. He was talking all about the future and what children will experience in the future world and how they might best be prepared for it. And he said, talking about the TED conference that he had been attending in 2006, it's put us in the position where we have no idea what's going to happen, no idea how this is going to play out. And he was referring to the conference and what people might do with the information that had been shared. But it also applies to our world and to education that in many ways we are teaching children to perform and live in a world that is 18 or 10 or however many years away. And we truly don't know what it will look like. And he said very specifically, it's education that is meant to take us into this future we can't grasp. He also mentions, as you had noted to me before recording, various anecdotes of children making attempts at things because they aren't afraid to be wrong. And I really appreciated that. He mentions one girl in an art class he had heard of who was questioned by the teacher as to what she was drawing. And the girl says, well, I'm drawing God. And the teacher had a confused expression and said, well, I don't know how you could do that. Nobody knows what God looks like. And the girl responded, well, they will in a minute. And while some might find that cheeky, I think it's a very clear testament to how brave children can be, especially in their expression. And Robinson goes on to say that it's clear that kids are not afraid to take that chance. And he connects this back to creativity, not saying that being wrong and being creative are the same, but that if you are not prepared to be wrong, you will never come up with anything original. And I think that's absolutely correct. It's something I've noticed in our time at college together and also before then that the educational system does reward correct answers. It's not creative thinking. It's not elaborate understanding. It really is the bare bones. And it absolutely punishes in many situations being wrong. Even if you're told to show your thinking, it's always because they want, and by they I mean educators and those who have established the system, they want the correct answer. And I imagine that many critics would say, well, if you continue to give the wrong answer, you're never going to succeed. But I would also say if you only give the right answer, 
I would question whether or not you're learning because regurgitation isn't really a thoughtful process. Most people can do it. And I think children have really brilliant answers, even if they aren't correct, to various questions and situations that we pose. What do you think of that idea, that relationship between being wrong and creativity that Robinson mentions? Well, during his talk, he said that he'd been trained as a college professor and that the phenomenon of the human body, how we all have these bodies, and that as we get older and older throughout the education system, the way in which we're taught moves up. We start learning from the chest up. Suddenly, it's just the head. And for academics, our bodies just become transportation devices for our heads. And I love that so much. But I also found myself being like, huh, because I really do champion thinking and thought. And I have so much respect for my professors and fellow students and the conversations I have with them that often are not contingent on my arms and legs or my chest. And it's simply about the ideas coming out of my brain. But because of that, there is so much that is contingent on how you think, where your opinions are based, and the confidence with which you present your opinions. And in that, there is definitely some fear in being wrong. And I think you outgrow that. I don't think that's something we're born with. It sort of reminds me of this idea he also conjured in his audience about the fact that we don't think of William Shakespeare, or really any intellectual for that matter, as a child. And that made me think of all of my professors and how I don't think of them as children. I mean, I don't even really think of my friends as children or my parents as children. It's such a far gone concept at this point when I think there's also this juxtaposition in our society that champions the innocence of childhood and how we're all just big kids and how we'd never want to grow up. But haven't we? I mean, don't we in reality actually just think of ourselves as adults and we have to act that way and uphold the great thoughts in our minds far more than anything that we could ever do with our bodies? And I'm really glad you point to the William Shakespeare example, because as amusing as it was to the audience, it is important to think of our idols or anyone we look up to or know to be successful or strong or capable as a process in many ways, because they came to great success through tremendous revision and growth and mistakes. And the people that you know and love today have made mistakes throughout their life. It's a process that informs through mistakes. And I think the education system in what Robinson focuses on is antithetical to that human nature. Evolution, a process that affects all life, is to me a process of various attempts and revisions. There will be certain strains of species that evolve and they aren't suited for their environment, so they go extinct. But that attempt was still made. And over the course of time, life does not reach its pinnacle. It does not become the best that it can possibly be. It takes mistakes. And in the case of evolution, mistakes that happen over millions and millions of years. But as people were so impatient with incorrect answers, and I'm also glad that you brought up growing out of certain things. Because Robinson says that creativity is not something you grow into, it's something you naturally have, which is trained out of you. And he argues through the educational system, and I agree. And going back to the idea of impatience that I had mentioned, I want to touch on the anecdote of Gillian Lynn, who is a choreographer who was responsible for Cats and Phantom of the Opera, who went to school in the 1930s, and school administrators contacted her parents one day and said, 
we think your child might have a learning disorder. And Robinson jokes that ADHD had not been invented yet, but she probably would have been diagnosed with it. And they suggested that the parents take Jillian to a specialist. And so they did. And after a while of speaking with the parents, he left the room to talk to them outside, but before doing so, turned on a radio. And he asked Jillian's mother to watch what happened. And Robinson says that as soon as they left the room, Jillian was on her feet and she started dancing. And the specialist said, your child doesn't have a learning disorder. She's a dancer. Take her to a dance school. And that's what happened. And very fortunately for Jillian, who says that as soon as she came to the dance school, she entered a room full of people like her, people who needed to move to think. She became a millionaire and was very successful, all because one person recognized that she wasn't wrong. She was just different from the system's perception of what it means to be a good student. And I remember thinking as I watched this video how curious it is that we have a term for a learning disorder, but we never talk about teaching disorders. We have a very top-down perspective, and for some reason, the masses in the classroom are the ones who are incorrect as opposed to the teacher at the head of the classroom. And I find that to be very curious. Just because the teacher has authority that makes them correct, I don't necessarily agree. I think it's a question of conformity. I think the teacher is the one who is trying to conform the students because that teacher was conformed by the system long before. And yes, indeed, in terms of order and in terms of teaching math equations, having a conformed classroom is certainly ideal. I think that's definitely true, although unfortunately it stigmatizes and problematizes a lot of people and the way that they think. And I think Robinson is careful not to dismiss the sciences or mathematics as being useless. He's simply saying that he doesn't think they're more important necessarily than other fields of academic inquiry. And I'm inclined to agree. And one thing I particularly enjoyed about our liberal arts education, Caroline, is how diverse some of the classes were and often interrelated, even if that wasn't intentional. I've learned a lot about European history and I've learned a lot about scientific development, but only because classes tied these ideas together, and often never because those classes directly aimed to teach me certain subjects, but they were passed over by happenstance. And I think that's important for critics of Mr. Robinson, that he continues to mention how intelligence is bolstered by different academic disciplines, which some might find to be disparate, but he says are intricately interconnected and benefit the individual, especially in a sense of creativity. But in some ways, it did make me question the choice of my major. I'm an anthropology major, but in high school, all I wanted to be was a drama major. And in his discussion of the championing of human thought, of the brain, it made me think, have I been conformed to choose a more practical path? I mean, anthropology is a lot more applicable, even if it is still sort of not the most practical of majors. It's certainly not math or economics, and Kenyon doesn't even offer a business or communications major. But it is certainly more applicable than drama, which is a little more niche, but also a lot more focused on vocalization and the body in its entirety. But I think at Kenyon, it is also pretty intellectual as far as majors go. But it did make me wonder that if my creativity that I had experienced so much throughout my schooling, not necessarily been encouraged, but it was something that I sought out throughout my education in especially middle and high school, 
Because, I mean, at the end of the day, aren't we all in college to be able to better ourselves, to get a better job and become part of the workforce? That is the fundamental idea there. Did somewhere in my subconscious, I said, oh, I like anthropology just as much as I like drama and anthropology is more practical in terms of getting into the workforce. So I'll do that. I definitely didn't make that decision consciously, but it made me rethink that. It made me rethink where the creativity that I so enjoyed for a huge chunk of my life made me think where it lies in the field that I've chosen. Did you have a personal response as well? I did, although it wasn't quite the same as yours. I constantly think, especially looking back at our college years, about subjects that I don't know much about. And I hope that at some point I take the time to learn more physics and chemistry and mathematics because I've been focused more on social sciences and the humanities. And I think, first of all, that everyone deserves the right to education. And there are plenty of people in the world who don't have the opportunities that we had. And I absolutely recognize that. But even in terms of lessons passed on by parents or elders in your community, I think it's important to receive a diversity of opinions and also, as Robinson mentions various times, a diversity of disciplines. And if you are focused in certain areas, even if it is the sciences where you might have a very certain career path, that you should do as much as you can to learn about other people. Because at least to me, in the beautiful truth of learning, you can't learn something that doesn't tell you about yourself in some way. As much as you learn about other people, you will continue to see new parts of yourself. And if you're learning about your world, you're also a part of that in many ways. So you will only benefit from learning new things, I would contend. And of course, it's your choice how you're going to apply that information. But Robinson made me very envious of those who have traveled more or learned more than I have. And I'm very grateful to be relatively young and hopefully have the chances to learn more things and do more things in my life that will expand my knowledge. But I really loved that thought from Jillian Lin about dancers being people who need to move to think because a lot of us have similar intellectual or cognitive preferences. And I think schools and education often ignore that. For example, the way we sit, we're all seated a few feet above the ground with a desk in front of us. And that's presumed to be the most utilitarian or effective means of seating students. But I mean, that's a fairly recent concept. It's only been a few hundred years since we've been doing that. Right. And I find that curious because I enjoy sitting on the floor every once in a while. And in certain amphitheater-like setups, I don't really like to be above other students and looking down past them towards the professor. And there are some classes that are structured in a very linear pattern, and I prefer more circular arrangements that allow for Socratic discussion, let's say, because I enjoy seeing the faces of other students and being able to react to them because we are learning together. And I think that in many ways, the structure of classrooms, not only the structure of education affects the way that we learn and process these things. But I really did love this talk, as is probably evident, and we will, of course, include a link to it in the episode description. Before we close the episode, Caroline, what are some things you'd like the audience to think about after listening to this discussion? Well, for one of my classes last semester, Modern Catholicism, we had to write a five-page paper or do a creative project. And for me at this point, I was like, oh, a five-page paper, easy, I'll do that, no problem. But then thinking about it and ending my senior year, it occurred to me that the maybe more challenging but more rewarding choice would be a creative project. 
And I think for our audience and our listeners, I think what I'm trying to get at is the idea that maybe what you're used to doing isn't the most creative thing anymore. And I think the only thing you can get out of doing something more creative or being consciously creative is something rewarding. I'm on the same page. I think it's important to change your pace and switch your routine every once in a while. And for educators who might be listening, because I know that some teachers have listened, see if you can inject certain opportunities for creativity or, if nothing else, the chance to listen to your students and perhaps break up the top-down authority model that we've alluded to, which I admit at certain points is absolutely necessary. But there are also moments, as I think Robinson articulates, where students absolutely know what they're doing and are very capable of independent thought and creativity that can astound all of us. And I was very saddened and humbled at certain points of his talk where he notes how we, as a society, bent on productivity and progress, have squandered creativity and natural talent that exists in people, some of whom are lucky enough to discover it, others of whom have the grave misfortune of being told the way you think, the way you express yourself, and the art that you think is important is not important, will not get you a job, and should be abandoned for sake of more important knowledge. And I think it's worth questioning that, even if you don't agree with that principle. But of course, ours are only two voices, and we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So if you have any opinions, thoughts, feedback, or input of any kind, please reach out to us. You can connect with us on Twitter or on Facebook, where you can like our page and get updates when we post new episodes. And you can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as reviewing the show and sharing it with a friend you think might also get something out of it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Caroline Borders. We'll see you next time.